One and two and three and one and two and three and eins und zwei und drei und 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 you're wearing a Jaws shirt. Yeah, Parth, <coughs> you got me this Jaws shirt. Yeah, I was, I was just about to say, it seems like a really cool person might give that as a gift. Yeah, I, I know that I already had two Jaws shirts, but it was really nice you got me this third one. But it's become my second favorite out of the three, so you're the silver medalist. And now it's that gray Jaws shirt that my parents got me, that's the bronze medalist, that really doesn't see much airtime now. Mm, I see. Speaking of favorite things that we've been doing... um you're one of my favorite friends, Trent. I appreciate that. You're um, you're top, you're top twenty-five, dude. Top. Oh, I was gonna go top ten, but that's cool. Yeah, I would really go as far as to say you're in my top thirty favorite male friends that are brown. Yeah, within a five-mile radius. Sure. Wow. So, what was I when I was in U- when you were in Utah? Uh, one of my 100 favorite um, male brown friends within a 2,000 mile radius. Okay. I think let's, I, cut the, I, let's cut the bullshit. <laughs> what have you been I, eating, Trent? Let's get out of this quickly. I was just going to say, this has gotten wildly out of hand. We are headed nowhere fast. I had a BLT from the bagel shop down the street. It, it was delicious. What'd you have? I had some leftover pasta. We made my uh, previous guest of the show. Yeah, um, tune in the Gone Girl episode. Yeah, tune into the Gone Girl episode. So Fiara Alexis is here, um, and we made some pasta and oven roasted peppers, little onion. You know, pasta ma- pasta marinara for short. Oui, oui. Sorry, I'm uh, I'm just in that headspace. Uh, Parth, as you know, since I'm watching it through your HBO Max account, so you're really with me every step of the way. Trent's watching The Sopranos, ladies and gentlemen, and he's really enjoying himself. Frankly, it's the best thing he has going for him right now. Not your friendship with Parth. No, that's understood. We've made that perfectly clear. Yeah, no, uh, just back to what I was saying. I just started season three. It's a really exciting time. Um, I really would be pissed if, for whatever reason, I were to die before I was able to finish the show. So, Or, like, lose your access to a certain HBO Max account? That'd be interesting if that were to happen. In my eyes, those would essentially be the same thing because it mm. would be everything I know worth living for suddenly coming to a close. Cue the intro. <laughs> yeah. Welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about the movies. Each week we talk about a film and hopefully have a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience working on the picture. This week, what are we talking about, Trent? We interviewed the Suspiria production designer, Inbal Weinberg, and uh, like in the name, she was a baller. And we, the three of us, balled out for mm-hmm. like 40 minutes to like an hour. Um, I don't like know. like 45 minutes. I was there. I remember really enjoying myself. Did you have a grand old time? I had a good time. She was did you super, learn anything? super cool. I did. Uh, well, I mean, w- w- you'll hear it in the 
following 40 minutes, but, you know, just some fun facts about Suspiria, how she got involved with the project, some, you know, human hair that was used as set decoration, and how it never got noticed by anybody. Um, You know, just some fun facts. Until now, this is the human hair wall exposure hour, people. Let's just say the stuff you get here, you're not getting that on Team Deacons, right? No, Parth really will take any opportunity he can to call out esteemed cinematographer Roger Deacons and the rest of the Team Deacons team. By the way, just rewatched Skyfall. Lovely work, Roger. Um, well done. Um, and although we shout curse words at you almost ep- every week at this point, uh, if you ever see our emails, we'd love to have you on the show. Yes, it'd be great. It'd be really cool. Yeah, we can set the record straight. But more importantly, uh, here we are this week. Um, to so should we just like get to the interview? Yeah, let's just let's just cut straight in. It's a super cool interview. She was super cool. Uh, just a lot of coolness happening. But Parth and I, uh, we'll do some little little one v one chit chat at the end. And I don't know if you want to miss that. And we'll announce what happens next week. Um, so you should probably stay tuned till the end because. Not only is there a big surprise at the end, there's like little surprises along the way. So it's like you can't even skip through. You have to stay seated the whole time. Cue the interview. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with Inbal Weinberg. She's the production designer behind such films as Beasts of No Nation, Three Billboards Outside Epping, Missouri, Perks of Being a Wallflower, and our film for today, Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. So the first question we want to ask is just what your relationship with film was from a young age. Um, I guess I'm a crazy film buff and have always been since a very young age. And I fault my grandmother for letting me stay late and uh, watch everything that was playing on TV when she was babysitting me. Um, but uh, yeah, I went to art high school. We didn't have film. I did fine arts. And um, I knew that I was looking for some sort of position that could mix both fine arts and cinema. And I sort of figured out production design basically from just seeing the credits roll at the end of the film or beginning of the film and kind of invented that position in my mind because it was it's a little hard to know what behind the scenes people do unless you're in the industry mm-hmm. um, but I decided to go study film not really design there isn't actually a production design undergrad program almost anywhere so I was like a huge film buff. So I wanted to go study film, but I already knew that I wanted to be a production designer. So I basically tailored my studies to kind of concentrate more on production design. And I was designing a lot of student films when I was in school and just continued to do that once I graduated. So where did you go to film school? And uh, as people who are in film school currently, I'm sure you had to make a lot of your own work. And how was that, especially knowing that your long-term goal was to be a production designer? 
Yeah, I went to NYU in New York University, and um, I sort of announced early on that I wanted to be a production designer, which was very helpful because, one, there's not a lot of craft people in film school. So once one is found, everyone is trying to get them to work on their student films. So I got a lot of work with, you know, I got to work with my colleagues um, who mostly wanted to be directors. That's how it was at the time and probably still is. And also I really enjoyed making films because I felt like it came with no pressure because I always knew I didn't want to be a director. And it was a little competitive for the directors among mm-hmm. us. Uh, some of the classes you had to kind of apply to because there were only so many resources that could be allocated so if you wanted to be a director and make like a color sync or a thesis film you sort of had to get into a class to do that and I immediately knew that I didn't want to do like a thesis film so in a way I enjoyed my studies I think maybe more like because they came with no pressure. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, I'm very um, thankful for film school, mostly because it brought me together with like an amazing group of people who then continued to make movies and we're still friends and many are still in New York or it doesn't even matter where they are. We have like this strong bond because we knew each other when we started out. And I think that's the best thing I could say about film school is that I had this community that. Uh, we then continued to be around. Um, in terms of actual practical knowledge, I don't know how helpful it was. You mostly start learn once you leave school. But I'm grateful to have had that opportunity to experiment, do short films. We shot on film. We cut on a steam back still. We were probably the last generation to do that. And so a lot of knowledge this kind of basic storytelling knowledge has stayed with me and has helped me once you got out of film school and like what was sort of your first big break into the film industry like what was the first thing that you got to work on well interestingly i have this slightly magical um well i came to film school because i loved indie film that sort of started around the early 90s indie American film um and one of my favorite um directors was Hal Hartley and um when I came to film school I was like I'm going to intern for Hal Hartley that was sort of my dream and so I found him actually through a professor at NYU and I interned for him for a few years and then we stayed in touch And when I graduated from school, I worked as an art PA, which is kind of the entry level position in the art department. It's like the one non-union position. You're basically everyone's assistant and you're running around getting things. And um, so I went to dinner with him one night and I was telling him all of my adventures and like the up and coming art department world. And then he was like, do you want to design my next film? And so that was my first production design job was for the man who made me want to be a filmmaker. So that was, you know, serendipitous and very beautiful. 
It was a tiny, tiny, very tiny nice meet your heroes moment. Yeah, exactly. It was sort of like, is this for real? But it was very, very small movie, um, which I'm sure was why he, you know, thought I'd be good for it. And then I continued to do like very small films and in in different positions. And then I uh, designed a film called um, Frozen River in I think 2007 or something, and that was you know, just a really well-written, well-acted movie. And it won Sundance. And I think that helped to kind of push me forward on other Mm -hmm. films. So you started as an art department PA, and then uh, you're now essentially at the top of the food at the top of the food chain as the production designer. So what are like the steps in between those things? Because there's like set set dressing or maybe that falls outside can you just tell me like the hierarchy yeah absolutely well it's interesting because it's sort of it changes a little by where you live in the u.s or you know because some of it has to do with union regulations in general there's non-union and union world in the film industry and tv entertainment industry, everything, almost everything is union, which means you have to be a union member to work on it. And the one entry level position that isn't is an art department assistant. So an art PA. Um, Mm. So I was kind of being an, for a couple of years after I graduated, I was being an art PA on like big productions where you're a little bit like a cog in the machine and you get to see the real classic Hollywood system at work. And then I was also doing a few different positions in the non-union world where really small films were getting made or whatever random projects, shorts and sometimes commercials. And I was doing positions like art director and coordinator, um, set decorator. And on these very small projects, the positions are almost just by name. They're mostly you do everything. It's like a very small group of people that does everything and you get the name set decorator, but it doesn't actually really correlate with like the big time positions. It's a little bit more like, okay, this is a team. We're going to work together to make this happen. Um, So I really think I benefited from both experiences, doing them at the same time. And then once I had enough credits that were non-union, i applied to the union because at a certain point you kind of can't progress past because you have to you want to work on bigger more legit things um so applying to the union is sort of essential and uh, there are different kinds there's a few different unions it depends what position you want to do once you kind of get your first exposure to working on set or on a project, you recognize that there's a lot of positions that nobody even knows about on a film set. And you you start, you start asking yourself, oh, what am I actually interested in? Maybe you don't want to be a production designer. Maybe you're really interested in the details and you love being on set. And so you decide you want to be a prop master, which is the person who's only in charge of what the actors are touching you know, Um, or maybe you love interior design and you want to be a set decorator, or maybe you love architecture and construction and you want to be an art director. There's, once you get into the system, you realize that there are a lot of different positions. They're not necessarily a step towards something else. You could be doing them and loving Mm -hmm. 
to do them for the rest of your career. So I recommend trying to just get on a project to just get the feel for what the structure is in the department and just even getting the feel for what it's like to work on a film because being on set is really intense, could be stressful, maybe not for everyone. Maybe it's the office that you like. Maybe you enjoy drafting. Maybe you enjoy shopping. So as much hands-on experience, I think, and even while you're at in school, like I interned a ton when I was still a student. So as much experience as possible, I think, before you decide if where where you're heading. Really quick, is union criteria just based on like the number of credits you have? Is that what makes you eligible? No, not really. It depends. In New York and on the East Coast, there's two unions that involve the art department. One, it they have numbers. One is 829 and one is 52. But all of the positions in the art department are divided between these two locals and they have different ways of getting into them. If you want to be a production designer, you apply to 829 and there's very long list. It's like a very large portfolio. You have to just show your various skills. Some of them are actual skills that you need to study like drafting, model making, pre-visualization, working with, you know, 3D modeling on, um, digitally, and so on. And then you sort of go in for a kind of interview where they decide if they need you, (laughs) sort of. And uh, with 52, which has like the prop masters and the set dressers, the set decorators, um, it's more a question of um, sort of apprenticeship where you you apply, but it takes a very long time to get in. And in the meantime, you're sort of permitted to work on projects and you slowly gain recognition within the union until they kind of at some point let you in. It's a bit more old school. So jumping forward ahead uh, to our main topic of the day, you worked on Suspiria. How did you get involved with Suspiria? I don't really have a very exciting story about that. My agent found out about the project and um, he has very good taste. And so he enthusiastically told me that Luca Guadagnino is looking for a production designer. I read the script and I loved it. It was wild and also had everything that I love about film. It was set in the 70s. It was set in Berlin. It was about modern dance. These are things that I personally am very involved with. I know Berlin really well and Mm -hmm. I love modern dance. So anyway, it was like a very unusual confluence of things that I loved. And uh, I made a very big lookbook, like it was a hundred pages. And I was really tapping into, I think, the look that Luca was looking for. So I think that lookbook mostly got me the job we had like a short phone conversation and then he was like yeah you should get her out here sort of you know so he took a chance on me and um in two weeks I was already in Italy so when you're doing a lookbook are you like cutting out pictures from magazines are you sketching things and I was just curious about of all the like sort of modeling options that you mentioned in the uh for for the for the union uh Uh, portfolio which of these do you actually use like for your own work you know it really it changes by project and I'm a little method about it so sometimes I almost do these 
type of art projects that have to do with the actual script. Like a few films had a script that was mentioning like a journal of the main character. So I would kind of recreate the journal. You know, I kind of go into one of the characters and I do like collages of sometimes just like a mood and not necessarily like, oh, this is the place I'm thinking of. So it it really varies. Um, I've done in the past, once I've gone to an interview with a vintage suitcase full of things that the script reminded me of, or um, sometimes I just bring like a million books and we look through various books. It really changes. Often it's like an actual notebook that like I hand to, you know, like I made it and I hand over like it's a kind of an object. For this particular Mm -hmm. one, because Luca was abroad, I made it like a kind of PDF. It was a little more traditional in terms of its format. Um, But the thing that I do is take a very long time to research the images that I think are like the exact ones that are in my head in a lot of historical context. So it takes quite a few days to sort of really mine for the images. Some, of course, can be found online. Some are in all of my books that I collect at home. I go to the library. I go deep into, you know, internet detective work to find the images that nobody knows. It's like beyond the first five in Google Mm. search, you know. Obviously, your job requires a lot of communication with other department heads. And we were wondering what kind of conversations you had to have with the DP or cinematographer and the costume designer to because it's a very specific looking film. Yeah. Um, Well, on that one, specifically, Luca had some of his usual collaborators. He has like a circle of people that have worked with him for many years. So it was beautiful because the, it's kind of like everybody got what he was going for and really pushed the envelope in every department. I remember walking through some of our offices one day, like going to visit hair and then makeup and costume. And it was so inspiring because every department had went really wild with their ideas. And it was really amazing to see how far people could go when they're given the liberty But in terms of the day-to-day, it also changes by project. Unfortunately, often it's so stressful and you never have enough time. And so sometimes these very important conversations fall by the wayside because you're just trying to get through the day of your own department. I had a really good collaboration with the costume department on Suspiria. The costume um, designer... I had employed people to do special patterns for the film. And so we worked a lot between graphic design of the art department and the costume department. We used some of their patterns. They used ours. That was really beautiful. Um, and then with the DP, it was interesting because Siam Bu has like a very calm attitude about collaboration and basically let me do my thing most of the time. And he was like uh, very accepting and complimentary about our work. So a lot of times I sort of let him know what I'm thinking of and asked him for specific things that would of course affect him like lighting or window dressing. But it was mostly presenting 
our mine and Luca's ideas to Sayambu and then working through his questions. My collaboration changes so much by the personality of the person I'm collaborating with. And also a lot of times it's on the director to bring the department heads together and say, okay, I think we should have a a four-person conversation about color palette, for example. And it doesn't always happen. Some directors enjoy seeing what happens when each department member like just takes the idea and runs with it. I find that it's very helpful to collaborate as much as possible, especially on color palette or lighting. So I definitely try to involve the department heads as much as I can. But sometimes we're just too run and gun for proper conversations, you know, how it goes. Mm -hmm. So I was reading another interview with you and it was talking, you were talking about uh, how you were, how you got the location of the creepy abandoned Italian hotel um, and how you were essentially like dividing the, you, you had your location and now you were dividing things into rooms. Like you had a mirror room and now this is going to be the feast room. And, uh, we were wondering, like, I guess, how often do, like, you getting... I just thought it was interesting that you f- you found your location and then you were, like, basing the construction of the scenes because you you felt so strongly that you found such a, a, good, a good place to shoot it. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I am very practical and I often work on difficult projects that require a lot of logistical prowess and... And part of that is the production designer is not really just about design spaces. It's like we're an essential person in trying to make the film happen. Like what solutions can we give to a film? And it could be solutions of schedule. It can be solution of timing. So I always suggest trying to find one mega area that we can sort of turn into a lot of different things because logistically is amazing to be able to not move locations. That's like an essential thing we're always trying to get to unless we're working on a, on a stage in a studio where obviously you construct everything and people come to the same place every day and the sets change. But That's also A, extremely expensive, and B, means that you have to usually be in a big city where there's studios. But I often work on these more adventurous projects. And um, I love augmenting existing spaces because when you are building something in a studio, you start from absolutely nothing. And honestly, to recreate real life is almost impossible because there are so many architectural decisions that are kind of arbitrary and many many people work on one structure over a period of decades and somebody like had to put the you know internet cable in this corner or somebody got to like a stud and then they had to then come up with some sheetrock solution for that problem you know like it's so difficult to recreate like those type of real life decisions in a built set so I love the Um, challenges of working within a relocation and I kind of feel like there's an aura to it as well you know like a sort of some type of spiritual connection that you don't get with just an empty space that you completely build Um, 
So what happened on Suspiria is Luca had already found this grand hotel. It is very, very unusual and had so much to offer, but was also a gigantic headache because it was really abandoned. And we had to basically restructure it to even just have running water and electricity. It was a very big challenge. So before we decided on it, we went on scouts in various places in Italy to see what we can find that is not going to be that complicated. And nothing matched this grand hotel. It was like obviously such a gem. So we decided to go for it. And a lot of the money went into literally, you know, the structure and the logistics of working there. But it gave us so much, like the grandness of it was in its bones. And we just needed to change some of the style because it was built in like an Uh, a time where the artistic style wasn't what we were looking for. Um, so we did a lot. We really constructed sets within the place and we had to really envision it way beyond what it looked like when we first arrived. So you kind of do a lot of thought exercises. Do you try to assume completely different spaces from the spaces that you're looking at? But it's still gives you a basis to start off from, which I find very helpful. And what we also did that was amazing, we really turned it into our studio because we moved all of our production offices during production to some of the unoccupied um, rooms and floors. So we were like running up and down all the time. I basically lived in that abandoned palace for a few months. Um, so... You know, to me, it's like part of the adventure, going to a studio every day, which is very comfortable and air conditioned and like there's a guard at the door and all that stuff. It's kind of less exciting, <laughs> but probably slightly yeah. more comfortable. This movie takes place in Berlin, but you guys did not really shoot in Berlin. Uh, so what what kind of steps did you have to take to sell the setting? And it's also not just Berlin, but it's 1977 Berlin. Yeah, we did just, we did shoot in Berlin. We shot for two weeks and we shot um, a lot of the exteriors there and some interiors. So definitely there is a lot of real Berlin shots in the movie. But okay. everything that was the um, the big con dance conservatorium and the exterior of it was shot in um, Italy. So our main issue was trying to figure out the street outside of the grand entrance because it was meant to be in the 1970s Berlin and it was in the middle of a forest on a mountain in Italy. Um, but so I did a lot of prep work. I traveled to Berlin. I photographed exact areas that were where we had assumed the neighborhood is of this dance conservatory. And I took a ton of photographs of very minute, like street furniture, the type of signs that you would have, because, of course, it had to be certain things that had been there since the 70s, because Berlin has also changed immensely. And it's very, very hard to find actual details from the 70s or before. But I really took very minute, detailed photos of things. And the most important thing was the Berlin Wall, because we had to recreate it in Italy. So I went to all the, there's, of course, parts of Berlin that still have the original wall. We measured it. I photographed it. I, like, did sketches of it. 
And so I came back with all of that information to Italy. And then we recreated it in Italy. So we literally built pavement, sidewalk. We brought asphalt. We had like a street made where trucks and cars could drive on. And we rebuilt the wall. We built 60 meters of the Berlin Wall right in front of the hotel. We changed a lot of the facade of the hotel because we wanted it to look like various buildings instead of one continuous building. So that was a lot of our work. And then we had green screen above the Berlin Wall and green screen outside of the windows that when we were shooting inside. And we had to figure out a lot of the exteriors, which was hard. We did some drop you know, we did some drops that were actual drops outside of the window. And most of it was done in um, CGI. So I also picked a lot of research showing what I would assume would be outside of that building. And some, you know, some stuff from old films from the 70s, areas where you can see what happens beyond the wall. And then I worked with the VFX department to just give them a lot of that visual research so that they have something to start out with. So this is a very dark film, not only thematically, but lighting wise. And I was wondering if everything kind of being cast in shadow changes your uh, production, uh, your design approach, essentially. You mean in lighting and shadow? Yes. Beautiful question. It's very interesting. I think, you know, our references for the kind of world that was the beyond world were very different than our references for the day-to-day 1970s Berlin. That one had like a very, the 1970s realistic Berlin had a specific color palette that we had agreed on and kind of a specific tonality. And then when we went into the, I guess, the underworld, we had totally different references. Many of them were from fine arts, performance art from the 70s, art installations. And so we, I guess, took it in a much darker and also actually darker color palette and tonality. But often, you know, I think that was more Siam Boo's realm and Luca. I kind of handed over the sets and then saw what would happen with them. The one, of course, responsibility that I have are lighting fixtures and often the lighting fixtures end up lighting the scene. So I would have conversations with Sambu and his gaffer about the type of lighting fixtures that we want to use in each area. And as many production designers learn the hard way, if you don't put lights in a set, it will not be lit. <laughs> so sometimes the darkness comes from less lighting fixtures, you know, like actual issues of, I don't know. We had a very big challenge with our final big hurrah set, which was the room where the kind of room of feasts where all of the mega rituals happen. And it was a huge, huge space and Luca didn't want to ever have lighting in there. Not he, he was fine with practical lights, 
but he didn't want any movie lights because he wanted to be able to cover everything all the time to see the ceiling, to see the floors, to see everything. And it was a very large challenge for the lighting department. And they ended up mostly relying on our lighting, which is beautiful. I'm glad we didn't have to deal with all the movie lights, but at the same time, there are some things in that set that you can't see at all that we really worked hard on. Like actually the walls are made of human hair and you can't even see that. (laughs) We worked on these gigantic human hair walls for weeks. We literally braided hair and painted hair and we're on scaffolding, putting hair together and you can't see it at all. So that was (laughs) <laughs> to, to no avail. At least I know. But I learned from that, you know, that's a big lesson for me because at the time I was sort of like, well, you know, we have these fixtures. This is what we're giving. The rest is not my problem. And now I know that it definitely is my problem. And if I would have helped to come up with a better solution lighting wise, then you would be able to see the beautiful work that my department did. You always learn, you know, you live and learn. Well, now the people of craft services know. About the hair walls. (laughs) Now, if you rewatch the film and you pause in certain areas, you would recognize that the walls are made from something kind of strange that is definitely not just regular walls. So you could see Mm -hmm. it if you pay attention. Uh, So I guess our last Suspiria-related question uh, is about, like, the mirror room that's there. Uh, Did you guys, how'd you guys build that and... Uh, I'm sure, I don't know how much of this was your problem, but like reflections are an issue. So, and I, 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 I read somewhere that you guys were working with like two way mirrors, uh, to like shoot through and that sounded really interesting. So yes, about the mirror room, that was a very large set construction because that room didn't exist. There was like a very large hall that was full of like crap that had been, you know, around the hotel for 60 years and was very hard to even imagine what would be there. There was a very funny and amazing moment where Tom York from Radiohead came to visit us on set and Luca and I were taking him around and showing him what it is and what it will be. And we're standing inside this large hall full of so many random things and we're like this is where we're gonna have the mirror hall you know and we're expressing it and he looks at us and he's like you guys are bonkers (laughs) and that I felt like was incredible that the lead singer of radio had just telling us we're crazy um but anyway so yeah for that um set was the one set that we actually built a regular 3d in life model we built the oh white model we put mirrors in it and we had meetings around it where you could literally look into the model you could put your phone in and kind of choreograph because the choreography was so important and the woman who was playing you know there's a few scenes there but there's one big scene with a dancer that is kind of some stuff goes down Um, and she had to choreograph, she had to practice it for a very long time to figure it out. So the choreography was important. So it was very helpful to have an actual model to look through. Mm -hmm. 
which I recommend for anyone who wants to be a designer, like real models are amazingly helpful because not everybody sees things spatially. Most art department people do, but you know, there's people with various visual capabilities that work on the set. So to really see a tiny version of your set is really helpful to other departments. So we did that. And then we experimented with a lot of different materials to figure out like how the mirrors would be done. And would they be strips? Would there be geometric forms? We were trying to figure out if they can open and close. So we did a lot of tests. We ended up with um, a, a sort of, you know, at first we were trying to be more sophisticated with it, but we realized that that was kind of beyond our means and also much too complicated in an already extremely complicated sequence. And um, But what we did is we had these breaks in the mirrors. So they created this really interesting geometric form when someone was walking past it. And then in terms of shooting it, we did offer a, we built a section that was a two-way mirror that the camera could go beyond behind and then shoot through. But to be honest with you, I don't know how much that was used during the shoot. They shot for like almost, I don't know, three straight days and they did crazy coverage, which I think at the end of the day, the person that had the hardest time was the editor because mm-hmm. he had to figure out like a, how to like skip, areas where the camera was reflecting or someone from the crew was reflecting and then to figure out how to connect it with the music and the rhythm and he had so much footage to work with so um hats off to him because it ended up so beautiful and I think that the the DP the camera operators were tried to be as agile as possible in not portraying themselves um But, you know, Luca also kind of dislikes prep. So after many, many, many conversations about how we're going to make it happen and people being like extremely worried and the VFX supervisor being like, we don't have this figured out, you know, he was, Luca was basically like, we're just going to do it and we'll see what happens. So we kind of just, they kind of just went for it. And I'm sure it was difficult on many, you know, for the camera department, no doubt for the dancer who had to, you know, do it many, many times and finally for the editing team. But I think they just had a lot to work with. So in the end, it was kind of beautifully constructed. Looking through your IMDb, uh, you have worked on a lot of interesting films, one of which is uh, Beast of No Nation. And we were wondering what the production for that was like and where it was filmed, because it seems, um, you know, very, it's it contrasts heavily with this film. For sure. Yeah. yeah. I try to take the most adventurous uh, kind of projects that I can find. So there isn't really quite a thread between mm-hmm. through my films, except for they're mostly very difficult. Each one is, <laughs> each one is juxtaposing the one preceding it, but is equally uh, harrowing, I'm sure. for sure i think that beasts was maybe was actually for sure the hardest production experience of my career and probably will stay that forever 
we shot in Ghana, in West Africa, and I think I was there for about four months. And we prepped in the capital, which is Accra, but then we moved to the jungle and we're living in a town called Koforidia and we shot in a lot of different villages around. And it was very, very challenging to make that film, but I'm so extremely proud of it. And I'm very honored to have been part of that team. I think, you know, it was the kind of classic issues of, not having enough money for the very, very ambitious, epic vision of the director, and also being in a country where resources are scarce and there's a lot of logistical issues with getting things done. Um, but I was lucky to have an amazing local crew and some really incredible people that came with me. We were a pretty small team, and a lot of it was figuring it out as we go. Um, but... I think that it was, it taught me a lot, that experience. And I also learned a lot as a human being, like being in Africa. And I am so grateful that I got the opportunity to see some like serious deep cuts of the continent. Because when you work, you don't have the tourist experience. You go deep immediately and you visit people in their homes and you do location scouts in places that like literally don't see white people and so we really went deep and it was extremely rewarding but at the same time very 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 difficult and what was interesting is that Carrie um, had this ambitious of course vision about a country that doesn't exist because it's not meant to be Ghana it's like a fictional country in West Africa that had you know inner strife and civil wars that are similar to wars that had happened in that area, but are not specific ones. Mm -hmm. So we had to create a lot for the film. We had to actually create like a whole fictional country. So we had to create all of its like symbolisms, like the flag, the shield of the country. We had to create maps. We had to like completely come up with our own geography for the country. We had to come up with currency so we had to make our own currency. And these are, of course, always things that are barely noticeable mm -hmm. uh, in a film. So as an art department member, you have to kind of accept that you're going to be putting so much effort into things that may never even be caught on camera. But at the end of the day, like all of that stuff is in the it's kind of in the. I guess, bones of the movie. Like, it's there, and even if you don't clock it as a viewer, it somehow elevates your experience. Mm -hmm. So I feel like Beasts is like that. We had to come up with our own, like, kind of version of this tale, like, of this reality, which, of course, we drew a lot from what we found on the ground and from history of neighboring countries that had those types of civil wars. But a lot of it was like a crazy mix of what was available to us and what Carrie wanted and the people that were on the ground that could do the things he wanted and just kind of like a whirlwind adventure. Mm -hmm. uh, so another great movie you worked on was Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. And uh, what was that like? Because that seems kind of awesome. Yeah, it was. that was a very awesome experience. Yes, we shot in North Carolina around Asheville, which is a beautiful town and was lovely to live in. And Mark McDonough is incredible and had 
such a we had such a lovely time working together and um the set was you know very collaborative and i feel like we everybody worked hard on finding solutions for the challenges and a lot of them came from the collaboration between departments so of course there's always difficult moments because there is never enough money even when you have a lot of money which in that case we didn't but um i think that it was a kind of intimate enough film where we could figure out our challenges and in a good way in a way that we all didn't feel like anything was a compromise and it was beautiful to see the actors come in once again we never shot in a studio we were always on location we again of course augmented a lot of stuff and I built an entire facade for the police station that didn't exist on top of a regular building we had um, on that film it was very interesting to work closely with the special effects department because we had a lot of fire elements and things burnt down and exploded so for me that was a very um interesting learning curve um because we had to design for fire and then of course we had the billboards which we designed from scratch and that was the titular billboards exactly it was amazing to work on a thing that where the actual title of the film is about production design you know like the symbol of the movie is a production design element and the opening of the film where you see the old billboards, you know, we worked for months to like decide on their look and what they'll all, and even the, you know, the big billboards, we worked for so long to decide on their color and their font. Like we went through a million different versions of it. And we even did a little model with the billboards and like tiny cars and the road. So yeah, that was a really interesting experience. And I, I very much enjoyed it. And I think that Martin had the very beautiful personality on set that sort of got us all to enjoy the day-to-day. So we were curious uh, what you are working on now, and we saw on your IMDb uh, there's a film called The Lost Daughter, which is marked Completed, and it's directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, and uh, it says that you were the production designer of that movie. Is this is this all true? <laughs> Wow, yeah. Thank God for IMDb, man. Um, I know. It's a, it's, a re- it's a really good resource for us. Yeah, thank God. I love IMDb. I um, Yeah, I actually got lucky last year, even though it was a pretty harsh year overall for humanity and for the film industry. But somehow, oddly, it was an adventurous year for me where I got to go abroad for two projects. So Maggie's, so yes, Maggie Gyllenhaal, the actress, just directed her first film, and it is based on an Elena Ferrante book, which is an Italian author that wrote My Brilliant Friend and so on. So it's a novella of hers. It's originally set in Italy, and Maggie had adapted it and was going to shoot it in the U.S. when the pandemic broke, and then we started searching for alternative places we like remotely scouted a few ideas and we very randomly I would say ended up in Greece and Mm. on a very small island so exactly a year ago in fact this week I all of a sudden flew I probably had not left my house in like three months and then um overnight found myself on a small Greek island um and was there sequestered for three months because couldn't get off of it because of COVID 
And um, we made the film there. And I'm very excited to see it shortly at the Venice Festival where it will premiere. So I'm leaving for Italy this week, in fact. Oh, um, how exciting. I guess, yeah. Probably by the time you aired this episode, it would have already premiered. And hopefully it's very good. So we'll, we'll see. I haven't seen it yet. And then um, after that experience... I went to Ireland and worked on a film called God's Creatures that my friends from film school made. And oh. also it was a very remote location in Ireland. It's a story of fishermen and oyster farmers. So in this interesting COVID year, I found myself working on two very remote projects that were sort of, you know, really indie vibe and, managed to kind of uphold some like indie spirit guidelines, even though we all had to work under very, very strict COVID regulations. So I'm, I'm very grateful for the year and I can't wait to see the movies and especially be at Venice, which if anyone's ever considering trying out film festivals is one of the best. So highly recommended trip. Definitely. Trent is, should I, should I ask the big yeah. kahuna? The, the, this is the big kahuna final question. So uh, we were wondering what the last great film you watched was, and it can be a first-time watch, it can be a rewatch, maybe whatever you want. Your ra- it can be a rainy day film. Just, you know, just t- tell us what's on your mind. Great. Well, the, fr- the last two weeks I've gone on a deep Michelangelo Antonioni um, kick, and I'm basically on an Antonioni film festival. I think I'm on my fourth one and I just rewatched Lickly. So I'm doing it in order. So La Ventura, La Notte, Lickly and Red Desert. And mm-hmm. um, of course, they're all amazing and they take a while to figure out. So I just rewatched Lickly with commentary. That's all on the Criterion mm. channel, which also I highly recommend to any real film lovers out there. Um, yeah, so Antonioni's been on my mind. Sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much to Inbal Weinberg. Uh, she's worked on such films as Beasts of No Nation, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Percy Being a Wallflower, and our, our film for today, Suspiria. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, guys. Really enjoyed this. Boy, oh boy. It's times like this where I'm really happy we have a film podcast. I love interviewing, and that's all I have to say about that. But speaking of that, I'm sure that we'll interview additional people next week. Well, next week we have our Suspiria discussion. Do you think it'll just be mono mono mono? Just you and I? Probably. Probably. Um, you looking forward to hanging out with me? Not really. You're probably in my top 50 white men that live within a mm, 3,000 mile distance <laughs> radius, like, you know? Seems like the phrasing of that uh, it's reminiscent of something, but uh, I'm getting distracted. Slipped your mind? Like my HBO Max password, Trent? Oh, okay. I just well, can't remember it right now for some reason. Anyways, uh, thank you to <laughs> Inbull Weinberg. She was super cool. Again, very Yeah, cool. really a delightful... A filmmaker, but also a very groovy woman. I'm not afraid yes, to say. Yes, and it. and she told us 
that Bill Murray was really cool. Off air. Yes, it was off air. So you guys won't ever get to hear about it. But if you guys ever see Parth and I like on the Rutgers bus, just ask us and we can give yeah. you a short little summary. Or imagine if we had like a Patreon and we were like, if you want to hear the Bill Murray story, pay $3 a month. Do you think people would? Pay, I think solely for the Bill Murray story. And she told us Ryan Gosling was really cool too, didn't she? Yeah. We should start charging people for the show. Yeah. I'll say um, I often like to pay for my podcasts. M- me too. Even when the production uh, level is this medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So, Anyways, uh, <laughs> next week, join us for our Suspiria discussion. And the week after that, you can get our Evil Dead interview. Oh, wait. Who's it with? Well, it's just with the cinematographer, Aaron, Aaron Morton. Morton. Oh, yeah. I remember him from when we interviewed him a few weeks ago and learned all that about did happen. the and learned all about the picture of the film. Uh, yeah. Anyways, uh, I guess that's it. Uh, follow us on all our social media. We have Instagram. We have Twitter. Those are the only two we have. And and you know, and if you're hearing this, you're gonna take your little thumbs. You're gonna navigate over to Apple Podcasts click on the app scroll around a little see what you like and then you're going to find your way into the craft services page our page scroll to the bottom uh to where the star rating system is and you rate us five stars then you're going to write a little positive review saying how nice barth and i are and how much you enjoy listening to us talk about the movies each week yes that would be very cool also just let it be known to the listeners at home since this is not a visual medium uh sophia alexis was just behind me in the frame as soon as in the frame, and as soon as we started talking about how we wanted to promote our show, how we really just love the listeners, she, she exited left. stage left. Yeah, so you know, what does saying. that say? Maybe she doesn't. Red flag. She doesn't really care about you guys. Is all I'm saying. Maybe. Or it's saying that if Gone Girl two comes out, that she doesn't want to make a grand return. Mm, true. Gone Girls, James Cameron's sequel. Nice. That was pretty good. Um, Thank you. I try. Well, I'm fucking tired of talking to you. How we wrap this oh, up? Oh, okay. It's not like we have an interview to do after this, but that's cool. Yeah, we are about to conduct an interview in like seven minutes, so I'm just trying to conserve energy so we can talk to, insert name here. We'll tell you which one it was when we get to it. Yeah, Parth and I have some fucking tricks up our sleeves. Stay we wouldn't tuned. want to spoil any potential miniseries is happening. Anyways, bye guys. Uh, as, the, uh, as the French say, au revoir.